This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to a very big episode 132. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The 20th anniversary of 9-11 has now passed. Afghanistan remains a mess. The Delta variant is ripping through thousands of unvaccinated lives across the country daily. And now there's a new looming domestic terrorism threat facing our capital again in Washington later this month. It's all a reminder that our fun, vaccinated, free summer of 2021 is almost over. Fall is coming in fast, and it's very much still a time to stay vigilant. We have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. If you know me or have read my book, you know I'm not a big fan of George W. Bush's presidency, or his leadership in general. But the devastation of the Trump era has created key moments for W. to shine. And I'll never be so much of a critic that I'm too blind to see when a man is right. And George W. Bush is right. 20 years after 9-11 especially, it is our duty to confront the enemies of America that come from within. They are indeed the children of the same foul spirit. And it is our continuing duty to confront them. And we have to confront them every day. In Congress, on social media, in your town and city. We can't allow hate and domestic extremism to grow and thrive in 2021 any more than we could allow Al-Qaeda and bin Laden to grow and thrive in 2001. When it came to fighting those enemies of America 20 years ago, we waited too long, missed too many, lost focus too much, and we paid for it in blood and in missed opportunities. Imagine where we'd be today if 18 years ago we focused on infrastructure and pandemic preparedness instead of invading Iraq. Now, as domestic extremists look to overturn our election, take over our capital, and kill our fellow Americans, we can't afford to miss again. If you see something, say something. Help the FBI. 
Educate yourself. Empower your children and your friends. Don't ignore painful truths and dangerous realities. Avoid the partisanship. Stay vigilant. And that starts with this show. And with not just remembering 9-11, but preventing the next one. One that could come as soon as September 18th. The so-called Justice for J6 rally has declared that its mission is to support insurrectionists charged in the deadly January 6th Capitol attack. That's why they're coming. It's scheduled to start at noon Eastern on Saturday, September 18th in Washington, D.C. It's being led by former Trump campaign staffer Matt Brainerd. Now, he says it's intended to be peaceful, but they said the same thing about January 6th. And already, radical, extremist, proud boy leaders are encouraging their followers to attend. A group calling itself White Lives Matter is promoting global demonstrations for September 18th. An online chatter is calling for vengeance in the name of Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist that was appropriately shot and killed by Capitol Hill police after storming the Capitol. So something's coming. And it seems like the Capitol will be better prepared for this one. The Capitol Hill police have reinstalled temporary fencing around the Capitol, and they're calling all cars. They issued an emergency declaration, which will go into effect about the time of the demonstration and allow the department to deputize outside law enforcement officers as United States Capitol Police special officers. And they're telling all members of Congress who aren't already out of the Capitol since it's a Saturday to stay away. That's what's happening in Washington, D.C. But there's no telling what could happen in other places around the country. Domestic terrorism remains our number one national security threat. National security threat. And like terrorists looking to hit America 20 years ago, their plans won't be limited to just one city. So will September 18th be our next 9-11? How close did we come to January of this year being our next 9-11, or so much worse? This week, we learned that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, placed two phone calls to his Chinese counterparts in the final months of Donald Trump's presidency. He did it secretly, without Trump's knowledge, to reassure Beijing that the United States would not attack them. Our senior most military leader had to call an adversary and assure him that President Mayhem wasn't going to start a war. These calls have been reported in the upcoming book Peril by Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. Woodward has another instant White House insider bestseller with lots of juicy bits. But like with the truth around the Bay of Pigs when Kennedy was president, it may be decades before we really know how close January 2021 was to becoming our next 9-11, or worse. I warned you on this show for years that Trump having access to our nukes was the single greatest threat to our world that we've seen in recent history. But the past could be the future, as Trump remains the frontrunner as the Republican nominee for president, and 
as Biden's numbers continue to drop after Afghanistan and as he struggles to control the pandemic. So 20 years after 9-11, I will continue to ask, what's the next 9-11? And it's what I'll ask my students all semester long in the Understanding 9-11 seminar I'm teaching at Amherst. And it's what I'll ask you. And it's what I'll ask our inspiring, important, iconic guest in this episode. In 131 previous episodes, we've never had a guest who was in a better position to tell us. So as people like Virginia Democrat Senator Tim Kaine absurdly try to tell America that we're no longer at war, our guest in this episode knows the truth. As Biden and his team try to turn the page on Afghanistan and deny responsibility for years of failure, our guest in this episode is telling the truth of the betrayal America has forced on the Afghan people. And he's demanding the accountability that they won't. And he's even admitting that that accountability should include him. And as the world dissects what current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, can and should do in his position as the senior most military leader in America, our guest in this episode has been in that very job. He's maybe the most truly independent American leader we've ever had on this show. He's a leader who, like Millie, held the line when others wouldn't. And he held the line that no other single person in America could. He's a true independent American who spent a lifetime putting country over party. He's a leader who remembers the lessons of 9-11 from 20 years ago because he was there inside the Pentagon as the plane slammed into the building he worked in, killing 64 people on American Airlines Flight 77 and 125 people inside the building. He'll share that story and much more. In my view, he is simply one of the finest leaders of our time. He was the 17th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from October 2007 to September 2011. He's our guest, Admiral Mike Mullen. Independent Americans is continuing our unique, independent focus on the most urgent threats facing America and exploring how they're all intertwined and how we can pull them apart and fight them together. From 9-11, to the pandemic, to January 6th, to the debacle in Afghanistan, to the threats of domestic extremism, they're all tests of the fabric of our nation. And they're all made worse by how that fabric has been weakened since 9-11, in ways big and small. Is America 2021 exactly what Osama bin Laden would have dreamed of? 650,000 Americans dead. Our international reputation in shambles. Our politics paralyzed. Our people divided and literally killing each other. Just like 20 years ago this week, we have a choice to make now. Every single American has a choice to make. Do we stand with America and a brighter future? Or do we stand with the enemies and the darkness that will extinguish the bright glow 
of the shining city on the hill that is the great American experiment. Every one of us can be the light to contrast the darkness and the light to weaken the heat that divides us and threatens us imminently. When the next 9-11 comes, and it will come, will we respond with unity or be shattered into 350 million pieces? We'll explore it with the man who was tasked by the president to defend all of us. It's another conversation that keeps it real, with tough lessons and hard truths, the kind that help you stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And that price must be paid on days everyone remembers, like September 11th, but also on all the September 11ths that were prevented, on dates we won't remember, thanks to missions and helpers we'll never know about. And thanks to the leadership of Admiral Mike Mullen. We're bringing the Righteous Media Five Eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. We're going from the last episode with the truth from a fighter who stood on the pile. To this episode with the truth from the Admiral, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was the senior military leader in the Situation Room standing behind President Obama, watching the bin Laden raid unfold on May 1st, 2011. Admiral Mike Mullen was the guy. On September 11th, 2001, 10 years afterward, and in the 10 years since, Admiral Mike Mullen was America's bodyguard, the boss of every single man and woman in uniform who served and all those who died in Iraq and Afghanistan and anywhere else for four years. If you're a service member in any branch, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the highest job you can get to in uniform. There have been 46 presidents of the United States. There have only been 20 chairmen of the Joint Chiefs. And you're about to hear from the best one of our lifetime. A man who would have made a hell of a president mostly because he never wanted to be one. A man who almost became a candidate for vice president, not as a Republican or a Democrat, but as an independent. Welcome to a unique examination of America's very unique position right now. Welcome to a conversation that's more candid than almost any other you'll hear from a leader of this stature. Welcome to a look at 20 years since 9-11 and 20 years ahead. Welcome to a fireside chat with a true guardian of our democracy. Welcome to an exploration of leadership with a true patriot, a sailor, an admiral, a warrior, a scholar, and maybe most importantly of all, a grandfather of five children, soon to be six, and a grandfather to all of us. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 132. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, and especially in Afghanistan and forward deployed in other places that folks may not be paying attention to right now. Uh, the guest for this episode is someone that was literally in my top five when I conceived of this show. He is a man I admire tremendously, I think is a conscience for our country, and in my limited interactions, a very good and cool human being. Uh, someone I've, I've been lucky to spend some time with and, and I'm humbled to have on this program. I am very proud to welcome the great and powerful Admiral Mike Mullen to Independent Americans. Welcome, sir. Great and powerful. <laughs> thanks, Forever man. great thanks, and powerful. Paul. It's really good to be with you. I'm not sure I'd, I'm not sure I'd use those uh, descriptors, but it's good to see you again. So I, I wanted to, before we get into a lot that I'm really thankful to have your perspective on, I was trying to think about the first time I actually met you in person. It's been maybe a decade and a half now. Yeah. And it may have been on a stage with Lady Gaga. <laughs> there was an event in New York City where uh, I was asked and IVA was asked to bring uh, like 100 veterans to stand on stage with Admiral Mike Mullen and Lady Gaga. Does that sound like it might have been the first time? Well, we you have, you, I think you may have most of that right. Uh, <laughs> that, that actually was at the uh, Robin Hood Gala. It was right after the Bin Laden raid. Uh, and, I and, and I had a few minutes on the stage with Tom Brokaw to talk about, uh, raising, not, not rate, but talk about the looking at veterans and supporting veterans and the challenges that they had. Uh, and it was, I don't know, 4,500 people. I mean, some big number and they raised a ridiculous amount of money, 47, 47 million, as I remember. 11 of which was eventually was raised to focus on veterans needs. Uh, and I had and I spoke with Brokaw about the, the veterans needs that I was seeing. And I was still on active duty. So technically, I couldn't really talk about raising money, uh, but talking about, you know, the needs very specifically. And then so this is 2000 and what, 2011, I think. And then for the entertainment later on was Lady Gaga, who came in, as I recall, in this big egg uh, and moved very slowly through this cavernous uh, auditorium or convention center. It was down at Javits uh, in, in New York and and then went to to then be on stage. I didn't uh, go with her to be on stage. So you may have conflated uh, Lady Gaga, my presence, uh, and yourself and those hundred vets all in one place. But, <laughs> That's in a large sense we were all in one place, but by and large I wasn't on stage with her. That 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 sounds right. I trust your memory more than mine. I remember it be, them being close together. Maybe you were yeah. off stage or near the stage. I remember the egg. She was carried through the Javits Center yeah. like Cleopatra yeah. in an egg. Exactly. And uh, and I've done a lot of veterans events, but uh, that was not a hard ticket to get from. <laughs> folks to show up for. Um, but it, I think we may have also been introduced through my dear friend and mentor, Les Gelb, 
yeah. who I miss, yeah. I miss dearly. And I know yeah. um, you had a very close relationship with as well. And I especially miss him in times like these. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think he, yeah, put no, us in I, touch I, I, I in, in fact, as I was thinking about engaging with you on this, I, I was thinking about less today because he was also, he's a mentor to many of us and uh, you know, a, a dedicated public servant for decades who had some really remarkable uh, ways to think about really difficult problems. And I know that he helped you a great deal uh, in your instantiation at, as the head of IAVA, which I thought was a remarkable achievement on your part and obviously still going strong from all I can see these many years later. But yeah, I, Les was one of the very special people. Mm. Yeah, he, he was um, kind of the godfather of IAVA for a long time, helping yeah. us uh, connect beyond the military community. I think he saw our potential as a generation, you know, long before yeah. we did. Yeah. And and his spirit lives on in, in so many of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know that if you go to Les's house, you probably went to his library in the back with Judy and the cats. Yeah. Um, and I, I would ask of all of our guests, where are you? Because you're not, you know, we're not on CNN. You're you're somewhere that has a very interesting background. And it's been a rough year, year and a half, the pandemic, so many other things. I ask all our guests, where are you and how are you? Uh, I'm at home uh, where I've been for the past 18 months, you know, in my in my office, in my house. Uh, and this has got to be probably the about the one millionth Zoom call I've been on. Uh, I mean, Zoom is great. Uh, it's also incredibly efficient just in terms of its ability to do back to back to back to back Zoom calls. Uh, and, and pretty much I've been here, you know, the whole time. We're, we're well, we're, you know, we're both fully vaccinated uh, and uh, we've been fortunate. We haven't traveled much at all. In fact, I was talking with someone yesterday. I live in Annapolis, Maryland. It's a 35, 40 minute ride to D.C. I think in the last 18 months, I've been to D.C. four or five times uh in total um it just speaks to the i think the world that we're living in and and you know i don't have to tell you or this audience what a challenge COVID has been uh but we're also of age my wife and myself so we're trying to be uh, very very cautious uh, about uh, exposure and we've also got five grandkids soon going to have number six and we're you know concerned about making sure we can continue to to see them uh, and obviously, you know, they have a certain vulnerability in this environment as well. So we'd, we'd like to protect them as much as we can. Mm. So one of the upsides of COVID is not having to go to, at least for me, not having to go to D.C. as often. Yeah. And he, yeah. you, you've, you've had yeah. your share of fun times in D.C. over the last you know, few decades. Yeah. Um, can I ask you, for, most folks are listening, but some folks are watching. I, I see some, so many interesting things behind you. Can you tell us what's over your right shoulder that has an eagle head and what looks like some, some medals around the neck of it? Yeah, there's just a couple of medals there, actually. One of them is a distinguished graduate from the Naval Academy, uh, and uh, which when I was very young, nobody would have predicted that. Um, uh, and the other is actually a medal I received out in uh, Los Angeles, which is which is where I'm originally from, from uh, uh, an outfit called the Jonathan Club. And what what I like about that medal more than anything else, it's much less that they chose me to give give me that award. But some of the people that I idolized when I was young, Johnny Wooden being one, uh, were uh, were also previously 
recipient recipients of, of that uh, award and designation. So it's a little bit of home. Uh, it's a beach. It's a beach club. I used to look at as a kid and say, there's no I wonder who goes to that beach club because <laughs> I know I could never get in. So uh, that's what that's there for. Well, you're it's, it's a good insight into your life journey, which has been an inspiration to me and, and so many others. You've been, uh, I, I think, really a conscience for our country through some of the hardest times. We just recognized the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. You know, your, your entire existence has been so shaped by, by the last 20 years. 20 years after 9-11, sir, uh, where are we as a, as a nation? If you could kind of lay out the positioning of our country 20 years after 9-11, and what do you feel are the most important lessons that, that we have learned or should have learned in the last 20 years since 9-11? Well, I, you know, my, my reaction to what have we learned or what's happened in the last 20 years, uh, we're as divided as I've ever seen it over the over the course of my life. And I'm a Vietnam kid. I mean, that was the first war I was involved in. Uh, to say I fought in it is a true statement, but I was on a destroyer off the gun line there for months, supporting Marines and soldiers ashore up by the DMZ. And, and that was a very difficult time for our country, for our military uh, in, in, in total. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I wore the scars, I wear the scars of that war as someone that went through, you know, that generation uh, and it greatly affected me and how I saw my job, you know, when I was in the chairman's job and now we're back at war. So my life in the military sort of started with war and ended with war, sad to say. Um, and in the latter half, in these last 20 years, I've just seen us divide in a way that I, I, I would not have thought possible. Uh, quite frankly, we were talking about COVID. So much of COVID now is politicized and literally Americans are dying because of the politics, the divisive politics associated that, that are out there writ large. And in fact, that are you know, embedded in the COVID response, as as was the case, you know, throughout the throughout the pandemic, quite frankly, in, in my view. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's stunning to me that we could we've lost six hundred and fifty more than six hundred and fifty thousand Americans in this. For years, I watched this divide get created. And, and my thought was, when people would say, and I talk about the divide, and people would say, what, what's going to happen? What are you going to do about it? And I would say, you know, we're, we're sadly, we're crisis driven. Uh, I think that there will be some crisis which occurs after which, or as a result of, you know, we'll all come together, choose a leader uh, that say that says you know we're done with this and we're moving, uh, and you would have thought six hundred and fifty thousand dead Americans would be that crisis, and we're not there. I mean, so so that's the biggest worry. Ten years ago, uh, I was asked uh, uh, what the number one threat to the country was, and what has become sort of a famous response, and I meant it at the time. Back then, it was our debt. Uh, and to remind, back then it was ten trillion dollars because I just couldn't see back in 2010 or 2011 how we were going to get out of that. Uh, and it's now, you know, you do the numbers, but it's now the debt is now at 28 or 29 or 30 trillion. I have no idea how your generation and your kids are going to pay for uh, 
for the future. Uh, I mean, because we just keep laying it on uh, so much so that now there are many uh, even there are conservative economists that are coming around to say, well, as long as the interest rates remain low, you know, we can continue to do this. I just don't sign up to that. That said, when I get asked that question now about what's the number one threat, it's us. It, it really is us. It's ourselves. And we need leaders to pull us together and pull us out of this. Uh, and I think it's going to be a long haul to, to do that. If this crisis didn't do it, and it certainly hasn't. In fact, I would argue the pandemic is added to that. So I, I think that that's that's what I worry about the most. Um, specifically, just sort of quickly from from you know 9-11 and you and I and all of us went through it. This is a pretty tough weekend uh, for me. I was in the building when the plane got hit. It actually flew in. Uh, I was out of my office down in the CNO's uh, office 50, 75 feet away from my office, but my two uh, up on the fourth deck of the Pentagon, my two EAs looked out the window, you know, and saw a 757 fly in under their feet. And from that moment, I knew the world had changed forever uh, without recounting, you know, all the, all of what went, all of what, ha what happened that day and the, those that we lost, which rightfully so, we remembered this weekend and we should never forget those losses. But I knew right then the world changed forever. And I thought we had it right initially, honest. I thought going to Afghanistan, we had to go to Afghanistan. We, have, we had to go after bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And then where we got it wrong, from my perspective, was going into Iraq. And it became, a, it became a, an incredible resource uh, uh, sump. It became uh, a complete distraction, which took us away from uh, Afghanistan. And, and I think that set the stage for for long years of returning to Afghanistan, uh, particularly under the Obama administration, which then got us to this position. It, the wars were too long. We stayed too long um, and we got distracted. Uh, we didn't understand enough about the cultures and the history of, of, those, uh, of those countries and, and of those regions. And I hope that we learn those lessons very specifically because those cultures and that history uh, is is remarkable. There's a book. In fact, ironically, I'm teaching uh, I'm teaching at Annapolis at the Naval Academy, uh, uh, and I'm teaching seniors specifically. Um, and uh, and this week, uh, literally tomorrow, one of the readings is from uh, Tom Friedman's book, From Beirut to Jerusalem. And I can remember after we went into Iraq, uh, maybe three weeks, four weeks later, something like that. Uh, um, if I, I came home one night and Deb had picked up this book, my wife, from Beirut to Jerusalem, which was one of Friedman's signature books, and and we were just talking before dinner, and she she hands me this book, and she she looks at me, and she goes, "Has anybody read this book? Does anybody have any idea what we're getting into here?" And you know that was a very instructive moment for me. Uh, it's why I'm having the kids at the Naval Academy read this tomorrow in my leadership class, because we don't do history well. And we're Americans and we think we're always the good guys and we always can win. Uh, and, and we don't need what happened, you know, the last time to inform us because it's our turn, our generation, you know, and we'll figure it out. And so one of the lessons for me, for your generation and for your kids' generation is when the time comes, uh, please dust off the old lessons learned.
you know, on whatever the issues are, because they are valuable lessons and you don't and you shouldn't have to relearn them all over again, as too often, uh, too often we do. And then the other lesson, and I think, Paul, you and I go back quite a way on this, the extraordinary, extraordinary generation of young men and women who served in these wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, and your leadership at IVA is a great example of that. But actually, when people talk about the future, I still talk about the hope that gets generated tied to these young men and women that, that I saw, that I saw die, that I saw get wounded, that I saw sacrifice everything for our country and their cohorts. Uh, and so I, and a bunch of them are coming into Congress and you've seen that as well. I think that'll be, that is good and will continue to grow hopefully for our country. So that does give me hope uh, in terms of uh, the future of our country. I mean, those, so those are some of the thoughts I mean, you know, you know, we could go on forever just on 9-11 and what happened and what's happened in the last 20 years. Your perspective is so unique um, and, and so vast around all of this. And I, there's a point that, first of all, I think I read Friedman's book when I was in a tent in Kuwait. It was like yeah. on my way. It was like my crash course. Okay, I'm going to yeah. read this as fast as I can before we head into Iraq. <laughs> and and, and uh, so that, that's a reference point for me as well. But you mentioned a time of difficulty this last week, and it's been compounded by the events in Afghanistan that I think have been, frankly, a a debacle over the last couple of weeks. And it's really created a level of stress in the veterans community and a level of sadness and just kind of breakage that I've never really seen before. And I think a lot of people in the community are hurt. They feel that the Afghans have been betrayed They feel like our promise to the Afghans has been betrayed. And there's a question I want to ask you specifically, if I can. You're hearing a lot of the the non-flag rates ask, who will be held accountable? 20 years later, there have been so many mistakes. You know, not a flag rate has been, you know, at least publicly really held accountable. Um, Frankly, most of it's not directed at you, but often at others and sometimes at you. What do you say about about 20 years? We've learned lessons, but have we held anyone accountable for failure 20 years later and specifically on Afghanistan? And will we specifically on the debacle of execution over the last few weeks? So um, I was uh, interviewed on this, I I think, uh, on uh, this week. Martha Raddatz interviewed me a few weeks ago on this. And Part of my response was I'm responsible for, you know, a significant part of this. I mean, I was the senior military officer uh, in the United States uh, of America. I advised two presidents, specifically advised President uh, Obama, you know, on the surge, if you will, for Afghanistan. And my recommendation, and it was the best thinking I had at the time, that this was the right step to take. Uh, Still very, very complex situation. Uh, some of that's obviously learning from Iraq. We're sort of in the counterinsurgency mode. Uh, that that work there in uh, 07, 08 timeframe to turn it around. And it seems like that was the right answer in Afghanistan. What I underestimated was degree of difficulty in Afghanistan. The history, the, as you've been, you fly around there. I mean, literally from one village to another, which is, you know, next to each other, they've never even seen each other. I mean, it's a unique place in the world. And I was, you know, I was also instructed by, you know, the book, The Graveyard of Empires, 
except there is sort of an American view of that as well. That was them. That's not us. That gets back to the the hubris sometimes that that we had uh, that, in fact, uh, led us to to that. And so it's hard to know that. I mean, I I as you've seen, I publicly spoke out and took responsibility. Uh, and there's not been many others that have done that, which is, you know, which is bothersome. Uh, uh, I, again, back to these midshipmen that I'm teaching, I I do teach them about accountability and responsibility, about owning up to your mistakes and, and your failures. And we all do and have, and I've had them in my career. So I'm I'm driven by that. I have been surprised no one else has, has done that. And actually that doing that received a, you know, a, a, a lot of uh, com- comments back to me in support of what I've said, because it's so unusual for a leader to do that, sadly. Um, so I don't know, uh, you know, I think, I, I don't know for Afghanistan overall, I don't know that anybody's going to be specifically held to account per se. We get held to account, like it or not, in our reputation and our legacy in what gets said and done and written about us over many, many years and decades, as the case might be. Um, But specifically, I I don't expect you're going to see anybody per se. And then fast forward to the end. And I agree that it was a debacle. I I also sign up. First of all, it was time to go. Secondly, uh, the, I mean, you know, I mean, it just, to pick the 31st of August makes no sense. It just you, you pick the Taliban at the height of their military capability any given year. Maybe it's not August 31st, but it's pretty close in the dead of summer. Why we didn't pick a later date is beyond me. The dead of winter doesn't mean it wouldn't have been messy, but it could have been much better controlled. And and uh, and yes, you know, once we had everything sort of in place, the the debacle or the disaster, you know, when you get 124,000 people out, it's a significant accomplishment. But if you if you move it, particularly focused on those 13 young ones who died, and then if you move it to sort of a larger, how did we get here? We could have sequenced this thing a whole lot better. Just I mean, it's just and it's easy for me. You know, I'm now nothing. I'm an armchair quarterback. But at the same time, it just didn't make a lot of sense. And uh, to, to execute it the way it was executed, per se, the size of the State Department footprint made, made no sense to me. I mean, it was 3,500 or 4,000 people, uh, you know, towards the end. I mean, a couple months before what I call Kabul Sunday, um, uh, it was huge, huge uh footprint there and i like many others i mean literally even as we speak i'm still working to try to get some afghan families you know out of you know out of afghanistan sorry about that son it keeps moving around can we can we drill down on that for a second sir because there's kind of a gaslighting or a shifting that's happening where the white house and i think the president and jake sullivan and others specifically keep talking about the numerator and not the denominator. This is how many yeah. we got out, yeah. but not talking about how many we left behind. Yeah. Not not a, not a very high degree of candor from Biden, who's usually a humble guy who says I made mistakes. They say no mistakes. This is how it was going to go anyway. And then I think even in this moment to hear um, Jake Sullivan say, you know, I'm trying to get people out too. to hear you as the chairman of the Joint yeah. Chiefs 
you know, retired say, I'm trying to get people out. I mean, this digital Dunkirk is inspiring, but it's happening because our government failed. And, and there's an outrage there that I think is asking who will have the honor or the accountability to hold someone accountable for that failure? That, that, I think that, I think the question is a great question and it needs to continue to be asked because I think back to the accountability piece, I think uh, someone should be and whether they will be is an open question. But I think for us to, as in all really bad circumstances, in, uh, in order for us to heal and move forward, you need that accountability. So someone should specifically. And in, and in my case, and I've been working with families now for three and a half weeks or four weeks kind of thing. And I'm and, and I sense I sense as I did maybe three or four days, you know, before the 31st of August, the window was closing. Uh, as you know, now there are many up in Mazer. that window's closing. You know, I don't I, I'm not. I, it's just my sense in my dealings. We're running out of time here. And honestly, one of the things back to sort of every American now, Paul, and I don't, the number I hear is a hundred. I, I, is that a hundred that wants to get out or that's a hundred Americans that are left there? I mean, it, to, to say that there would be a hundred Americans that wanted to stay there wouldn't surprise me at all. But the tens of thousands, you know, the, another, the, the additional, you pick the number, hundred thousand that helped us that want to get out, that's, our, I think that is our responsibility, and I don't know yet how we're going to do it. And I got a call uh, yesterday or the day before from someone uh, who actually is pretty close to this administration who asked me a question. He said, do you know who the two presidents are that did this better than anybody else? And I said, no, I should, but I don't. He goes, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, because at the end of the Vietnam War, they opened up the floodgates and brought in a million Vietnamese to our country. Uh, and, you know, my editorial comment on that on top of that is look what great citizens they have become. Look what part what a significant part of the fabric of America they have become. So the risk is minimus. Is there a risk there? Absolutely. But we need to do that. And that's what we haven't done. My own view is we're care so we're too carefully screening them. Uh, uh, and that's really through the, the process, which I think is being run by State Department. It's not just them because DHS is involved in this as well. And we've been too carefully screening them, you know, from the get go, with the exception, I think, of when HKIA opened up initially, right as the Taliban came into town because they opened up the gates and just about anybody that wanted to get into HKIA and leave the country got in. After that, it's been tough screening that has really slowed and jammed the process. So it's, it's, it's uh, encouraging to hear your candor because it's in such direct contrast to what we see coming out of the Pentagon, the State Department, the White House, some in the Senate. You know, it, Senator Tim Kaine says, you know, it's great that America's not at war for the first time in 20 years. While people continue to get combat pay and imminent danger pay, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a contrast that, that seems stunning to me to kind of paint a very different narrative. So we're going to, you know, I, I don't know what happened here. Like either, in my view, either Jake Sullivan gave the president bad information or the president didn't listen to it. I don't know if there's a middle ground yeah. in between, but it seems like that's the intersection of power in the chain of command. Right. And, and, and someone there should be held accountable because if they missed this by this much, 
on the 20th anniversary of 11, mm-hmm. 9-11. What else are they going to miss? Well, I think, I think that's question a fair that question. Asked, right? I, well, I think that's a fair question. I mean, it's very clear that, uh, and maybe it goes back to the environment we're in, we're sort of where we started. We're living in a hyper, hyper political world. And so first out of the gate in solving this was 22 elections. Where are we at risk? And so how much of a hold and who had a hold on this process as it affected that? When, you know, 75% of Americans want to get out of Afghanistan. And and you've heard that over and over again, per se. Uh, One of the things I learned in the Obama administration, I mean, this is what I came to believe is, as politics got more and more partisan, which it did over you know decades now, the inability to let go of the political out political factors, political outcomes, and do what was substantively right, which I would argue in most cases would work well for you politically, it just it became more and more challenging. So hanging on to this, you know, through the politics of it, uh, I also suspect had a lot to do with you know what how we ended up. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking to friends right now that think the political actually for the Democrats that the 22 elections are lost as a result of this. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of time between yeah. now and. But there's always you know, a question of, of competence, right? You're responsible for the decision, but also the execution of. The decision. Absolutely. And then, no, and absolutely. then candid and then candid conversations with the American people about, you know, it's 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 almost like watching two screens. You have the White House channel and then you have the reality channel. And it feels for me it feels like listening to George Bush in 2003 and 2004 when 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 there was a you know a white house story and and a reality story but as we pick all this apart sir and it you know it can feel for folks like the national security world has our head spinning and i try to keep yeah. our focus on that asking people to stay vigilant about it as we have this conversation we're finding out how close did our country come to disaster in january you know you've been in that chair everyone's talking about you know what General Milley did what General Milley didn't do. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know. But can you maybe from your perspective, for the the, the layman, how close did we come to something much worse? So I guess is a real question that that I don't think people have heard from someone in your position who knows you've been that guy talking to the president. How close did we come to something much, much worse during that time period that we need to learn from? So much closer than I ever thought we would. Um, How close actually? It's hard for me to know that. One of the ways, as difficult as those four years were on so many institutions, one of the ways I talk about it, Paul, is that the institutions held, you know, the courts and the rule of law held in that situation and continue to hold as you look at the prosecutions uh, and the cases against all those, so many of whom, you know, hundreds uh, who were uh, on the Capitol that day. Um, uh, so it's, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can say any better than that. It was a lot closer than I ever thought, but at the same time, you know, I'm not sure. It, it, I don't think it was ever imminent per se. Uh, and actually it's one of those things that had it happened, I, I'm, I tried to imagine, well, what does that mean? What would we do? How would it be implemented? All those kinds of things, all of which would have had to have been put in place as well. So, it was it, exceptionally dangerous, tragic loss. I, I think in particular of the, you know, the, 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 I think it's six policemen that lost their lives, six mm-hmm. or seven, one way or another, mm-hmm. either killed themselves or, or died. 
kind of thing. You know, the incredible sacrifice there. The video will never not be in my head uh, of, you know, going into the Capitol. I mean, taking on the very institution you claim you support, uh, if you will. The proclamation of, of killing the vice president, the, you know, the speaker of the house, et cetera, the minor, all of those kinds of things. They're just things that I couldn't have imagined uh, have ever happened or come close to being true. And it's a warning shot. It's a huge warning shot about where we are and the need, quite frankly, to clean it up from a political standpoint and bring the country back together. I don't want to get any further apart than we are. And that hopefully, hopefully, you know, that was a, that was a waypoint, if you will, that, you know, that we won't get any further apart and that will somehow come together. Although I don't know how that will be. So we hope for that and we root for that and we fight for that. But as we do all that, the vaccine mandates are coming down. They're yeah. going to drive a wedge. And the one in particular that I don't think got enough attention and I, in my view, took too long was a mandate for the military to get the vaccine, um, which is still maybe 30 percent of the military isn't vaccinated, which to me seems like a force protection issue. I didn't have the option of not wearing my helmet when I went yeah, out on patrol. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I worked for you from a very far distance yeah. for folks to not have the option. Now, did the president is, is this a national security failure for the president? And the SecDef, Chairman George Chiefs, to not have vaccinated our forces sooner. I don't. I don't think it's a national security failure, Paul. I. I. Um, I, I think what's happened is they just put it in place over time. I mean, uh, you saw this. You saw the secretary give what I what I would call a warning shots early. Hey, this is going to happen. They're now in effect executing it. And 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 there's a. I mean, you you and I were in the military. They're okay. What are you going to do with the ones who don't sign up? you know, and, and, and won't do it, et cetera. And, you know, my answer to that is they're probably going to get processed, you know, somehow. I, I, I'm, I'm not when sure. When did it become an option, sir? When you were in the military, the military, I didn't have an option. Oh, no, no, no. I think, things, right? I right? think he could, I, mean, I think it's a question of timing. I think he could have right. done it. You know, right. he could have done it on day one. Right. This is what they chose to do, you know, for whatever reason. And it is to some degree in conjunction with, you know, the rest of the mandates um, that are coming. It's also back to, you know, where does this go? Um, I Someone said the other day, and I thought, hey, you, we're going to get to the point where you're either vaccinated or you have COVID, you know, basically, which is a pretty sad state from my perspective. Yeah, and, and maybe, you know, would have been a dream for Osama bin Laden to see. Well, somebody said. Later, so, so, to see uh, this many Americans die, to see insurrectionists yeah. taking the Capitol, to yeah. see our allies mistrusting us, to see, you know, people who stood with us abandoned. I mean, in many ways, 20 years later, a lot of this has our, our enemies celebrating. And let me ask you this, sir, as, as we think about the division, which I think you rightfully identify as a key threat and domestic extremism is a key, if not the number one national security threat. We try to find solutions to this division. Right. And this show is called Independent Americans. A lot of folks are unaffiliated. They're politically independent. They're rejecting yeah. both parties. It was reported that you would have been Mike Bloomberg's selection for vice president if he ran as an independent. Um, would you ever go for office again? And, and if you would, would you align with either of these parties? Where is the future for folks like us? We look to someone like you that, frankly, if you stood up and said, I'm starting the independent movement that rejects the parties and puts country first, 
we, we end up with Howard Schultz or someone else, but there are a lot of folks like you that have been on the sidelines, apolitical, that we want to pull in. So is there a future that, that you can lead or be a part of that is politically independent and necessary in this urgent time? I don't, I don't think so. Um, that's, that's me. I mean, part of it for me in, in going through that process with Bloomberg was, uh, you know, finding out it, it's a blinding flash in the obvious, but if you haven't been in it, it's much less about doing the job than it is going through the gauntlet to get to it. I mean, which is extreme. Uh, and that's not all bad. I mean, this is not an insignificant job. I mean, that's one piece. Secondly, the parties have locked this up into a two-party system over, you know, decades and decades and decades. So the idea that a third party could come in, which has happened before, and it's seemingly each time it does, you know, it undoes one candidate uh, uh, with respect to the, the future. Uh, uh, Bush 41 would be a great example with H. Ross Perot, but others, it's the same kind of thing. And the, can the parties are so powerful, so structured. And if you, if you are not of them, you know, that they will not, not literally, but they will kill you uh, per se, no matter who you are, because you threaten their very existence. So, which is, so the answer I'm giving you is it's pretty discouraging. I think it has to come sadly from, you know, within, within that group, there've been, you know, I was talked to not too long after I retired, actually, before the Bloomberg thing, talked about being involved in another group that was looking at a, you know, third party. It just, you know, it's like the parties sense it's out there and they just move in every direction to kill it. Mm. Uh, of the competition. It would just have to be such a groundswell. I mean, I would, I would love to do it in terms of the independence, in terms of the skill set, in terms of the, you know, helping the country, that kind of thing. It, I, I don't see a path. One, two is, and I've talked about this with others, it's not us. It, you know, it, somebody with my background when I think about or what I've seen in the political world, that's not me. You know, I mean, that's it's it's it would cause me, I believe, to become someone that I'd never want to become because of the requirements of the political world. That now that's I'm, I'm trying not to cop out here. It's just what I've learned and seen. Um, you know, so I wouldn't slam the door on it. I just don't know where the door is. Well, I, I think you and I have had informal conversations about this in the past. I, th I think it has to start with a couple of key leaders and, and a strategy, right? Yeah. There needs to be somebody who pulls a strategy off the shelf with the right goals, the right resources, the right leaders. And if you and Mike Bloomberg and Colin Powell and pick 10, 10 other you know, transformative figures that, that have the resources and power said, OK, we're putting country first right now and trying to disrupt this for the sake of, of our government. I think, you know, George Washington warned us against the parties yeah, yeah. And, 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 and now we're seeing it come full together. So I'm going to root for I wish there are plenty of times in the last couple of decades where I wish you were president or I wish someone like you were president because the person who doesn't want it is the person we often need, especially in these times. But well, I, uh, um, you, you flatter me. Paul, I, believe me, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I certainly I certainly wish there was a cadre of leadership taking the country to a, you know, a different place. And not, I'm not just talking about right now. I'm talking about over over a, a long period of time. Well, you're you're a true keeper of the American flame. Well, and, I, and, I, and I promised you I'd let you go if you have a couple minutes afterward to stick around for rapid fire for our members. 
I'd sure. love to get your thoughts on those. But um, maybe maybe a, fi- a final request of you, sir. A lot of folks are going through hard times. Yeah. They feel hopeless. They feel frustrated. Um, you have been a North Star for many of us that know to listen for your words and look for your words. But for the folks who who maybe haven't heard from you, what's your message to them? You're not president, but you're one of the, in my view, one of the most important leaders of our time. What is your message for those folks who are, who are grinding through it right now and, and maybe really struggling? So one of the things I learned as a sailor, you know, about ground combat uh, uh, was uh, in these formations we call brigades, uh, but really right down to the platoon level is, is usually at that level, we knew who was going to struggle when they left, when they got home, et cetera. And one of the things I've encouraged uh, uh, young, mostly young, certainly younger than me, young people to do is, is to stay in touch with your buddies from the fight. Um, really key. And we have a tendency to come home and, and, and the structure that's there, the camaraderie that's there, the things that, that we loved, whether we thought we loved them or not, and all of a sudden they're gone and you're by yourself and you, and you don't have any support and you can't have any conversations with anybody that really understands what you went through. I mean, that piece of it. So I, I have encouraged for years individuals who are struggling like this, but others who, who know that others will struggle uh, or that they're in touch with each other often enough to pick them up, to remind them who they are, that they have a future, you know, that they did good things, that, that we need you for the future, those kinds of things. So reaching out to them, uh, I think, and to each other, uh, with that common bond and camaraderie to remember uh, it by, I think is really key. Um, and it's one of the things that, uh, back to IAVA, it's one of the things that IAVA does, et cetera. But you know better than I, I mean, we're, we're at an all-time high for suicides in the country, as well as in the military, as well as in the veteran space. We need to, we, we need to stay in touch to intervene ahead of time before somebody takes that tragic step, if you will. So that's one of the things that that's one of the ways that I think about, you know, what to do in this very painful time. And quite frankly, this last weekend was very painful for me for lots of reasons. I I can still remember the voicemail I got from my younger son as he was in tears, leaving a voicemail for me saying, you better pick up on this line because he didn't know whether I was dead or alive based on what happened at the Pentagon. So I, and I certainly don't equate that to losing anybody and the tragedy that families went through that day in that regard. But this, you know, the recent times, and, and I think you have it right, this sort of, this combination of the Afghanistan withdrawal and 9-11 at the 20th years has been a really, really difficult time for many people. And Others should recognize that and not just assume it was another weekend or another couple of weeks uh, and make sure they're checking on their buddies. Your, your humility, your patriotism, uh, your candor, and the way you've opened up is, 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 a role, is, is an example of what a role model should be in this country. We say all the time, like Mr. Rogers used to say, look for the helpers. You've been a helper for well, a long thanks, time. Bro. And I know you're a grandfather now. I know you're retired but the country is going to need you now more than ever. And I'm grateful that you've spent this time with us and for all that you've done, much of which we will never know about um, on behalf of all of us, sir. Thank you for all that you've done for us. And thank you for joining me. It's been, it's been a humbling honor to have you here with me on, on the show. Thanks Paul. It's been really good to be with you. Stay vigilant, sir. 
there you have it. Now, I think maybe you understand why I think Admiral Mullen would have made a great president. Or why he still could. He's one of the single most important figures in post-9-11 American and global national security. He's one of the leaders of our time that I respect the most. And after the Millie Trump China story, he's a leader everyone wants to hear from right now. And we heard from him here. And you got the bonus of a very interesting Lady Gaga story. But as you heard, at his core right now, he's a very proud grandfather. And right now, he's like America's grandfather. And man, do we need him. When I say look for the helpers, Admiral Mike Mullen is what we're talking about. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Mr. Rogers is gone, but Admiral Mike Mullen's still here. And he's truly a helper. And he is far from done. My thanks to him for joining me. And also my thanks to his amazing wife, Deb. And to U.S. Navy Captain Retired Karen Vernazza in his office. They're all exceptional. And for all his power and experience, nobody's more generous with his time, his mentorship, and his wisdom than the Admiral. My thanks to him again. Maybe most of all, for showing us all what it means to love. From his connection to the troops, to his dedication to our Constitution, to his fights for equality like the removal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, to his openness right now about his own pain. He shows us all what it means to love his country, and especially his family. And my massive thanks to my own family, my wife and my two boys. Fall is here, and my boys are doing soccer, which is great, but they're not doing football. I asked my older boy to choose, and he chose soccer, which kind of broke my heart. So no football this season, which maybe is for the best. Because what a complete stinker of an open for my Giants. Total lack of everything. Weak and flat on both sides of the ball and 10 carries for Saquon Barkley? Nothing about this weekend in the NFL gave me any reason to feel optimistic about my Giants being much better than last year. It might be another race to the bottom against the Jets this year. So if you're a New Yorker, all you might have this season is the Bills or maybe Army. My boys aren't in football, but they are finally back in school. And if you're like me and you had a child head back to school for the first time in the last couple of weeks, you're having all the feels with them gone all day. And I want to know, I feel you. Like Admiral Mullen, I have two sons and they are finally back in school. Ryder's in first grade and River is in nursery school. And I am very, very proud of them both and very grateful that they're in school this year and in school together just a few feet apart from each other. They're masked up, walking into the unknown yet again. Without a vaccine, but they're rolling in every day like it ain't no thing. Playing with magnet blocks and singing Sing Ho from Winnie the Pooh and studying butterflies and looking out for each other. And especially for me and their mom over this hard last few weeks. They, like so many other kids are heading back into school right now, into the unknown. And the teachers and the school administrators by their sides, 
They're all my heroes. And a source of inspiration we really need right now. Speaking of thanks and inspiration, shout out to all our fearless Patreon members. Especially some of the most dedicated, especially Mark Reed. Mark Reed has been holding it down for us and Grace Luteric. They bring the fire every week. And my thanks to all of you who are part of the vigilant, the very vigilant, the most vigilant. If you're part of that crew, you will get some extra content with Admiral Mullen coming right up. There is bonus content right now for you, Patreon members only, including Admiral Mullen's very surprising first car. And, of course, he tells us his favorite drink, what makes him happy, and he answers the hard one, pancakes versus waffles. And he did not hesitate on that one. So if you're not already in the movement, you can join our growing army of independent Americans with exclusive content and extra events by becoming a member of the Independent Americans Patreon community. It's just five bucks and you get access to lots of great stuff, events, merch discounts, exclusive content, access to our guests. It's good stuff. So if you can throw us a couple bucks, please do and keep this machine running. And especially now... My big thanks to the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez. They continue to power this show and make it possible. And they make everybody and their mother has a podcast possible. And they now make the Firefighters with Rob Sarah possible. Big shout out again to our friend Rob Sarah, our guest in the last episode. If you didn't hear that one, go back and check it out. It was our 9-11 special. And if you've looked on social media or on television, Rob has been everywhere since he joined us. And I am very happy to report back on his behalf that the FDNY defeated the NYPD in the classic hockey game at the Garden 7-4. to And it was indeed a classic. It had everything. So much heart, some great playing, lots of great hitting, lots of scoring. And the FDNY did defeat the NYPD. But everyone was a winner. And it ended as it should, with handshakes and hugs. It was more than a game. It was a true testament to service, to teamwork, to New York City, and to America. So well done to all of you, and thank you, especially Rob and the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation. The game was on ESPN2 and got tons of traction, and you helped millions ensure they never forget. And I got to tell you, I was so proud to know Rob Sarah. He's been speaking up for so many that can't speak up for themselves, and he went nonstop all week with a cane, in a wheelchair. Despite tremendous physical pain, he just kept fighting. From joining us early in the week all the way through 9-11, all the way through Friday night at 9 o'clock on CNN with our friend Chris Cuomo, he was amplifying the fight and bringing it to America. So be sure to check out The Firefighters. It is a fantastic new show, and a new episode is coming on Friday. And as Rob says, when you're retired, every day is Friday. For episode two, Rob is going back to the day of 9-11 again with another extraordinary guest, former NYPD and FDNY and current attorney Joseph Camarada, joins Rob to talk about his memories of his brother that he lost on that horrible day. It's tough stuff, but it's important, and it's stories you won't hear anywhere else. And... Rob will take you inside Madison Square Garden for audio from the big win. You'll hear what it was like in the locker room, and he'll tell you stories from behind the scene. And of course, his daughter Frankie has another new recipe for you. You can find it anywhere you get pods or go to thefirefighters.us where there are also sweet hats and shirts. You can join Rob's Patreon anywhere you get pods or thefirefighters.us. It is the hottest podcast in America. 
And while you're over there subscribing to Rob's show on the Apple Podcast Store, please remember to give us five stars. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for free and share. It's free. And you can visit us on social media or check out independentamericans.us. You can join our Patreon. You can see some of the recent media interviews I did around 9-11, including with our friend Stephanie Rule, who joined us on this show. And you can read my 9-11 story. I haven't really told it on this show, and I haven't told it in public in a while, but I wrote it down many years ago, and I post it every year. So my story is there. Everybody has a 9-11 story, but that one is mine. All at independentamericans.us. You can also see video of this conversation with Admiral Mullen and over 130 episodes. No Lady Gaga yet. But you can go back and check out Ken Feinberg in episode 102, who, as we've covered 9-11, was the special master of the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. He was the guy who was asked by the government to determine how much a human life is worth that was lost on 9-11. It's a fascinating episode 102 from back in February. And in that episode, he previewed a film that was coming up about his life. Well, it's out. It's called Worth. And it is now on Netflix starring Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, and Amy Ryan. It's on top of the Netflix list right there with Coco Melon, which is a kid's show that kind of makes me insane. But check out Worth on Netflix and check out episode 102 of this podcast with Ken Feinberg. And you can go back and check out video from that episode and all others on the Righteous Media YouTube page. And if you've never been over to the Righteous Media YouTube page, do me a solid. Go over there and give us a quick subscribe. It's free. And we're doing more and more video. And for your friends that maybe don't do podcasts, the YouTube channel is a great way to introduce them to this show. You can share Admiral Mullen. You can share Rob Sarah. You can share Mick Foley, Chuck D, Chuck Hagel, and so many others. Do it and post a comment, and I might just see your comment and send you a free Independent Americans t-shirt. America may be more divided than ever, but we at Independent Americans are trying to change that, adding light to contrast all the heat of the other political shows and the dialogue in Washington. Every episode is going to continue to bring you the righteous media five eyes, and especially if you're among the 40% of Americans who are independent or unaffiliated, this is your show. But if you're just a concerned American who affiliates with any party and cares about the future of your country, this is your show. All are welcome, and we invite you to be a part of the solution. Like Admiral Mullen, like Rob Sarah, and even now, like George W. Bush. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America... Those days seem distant from our own. Malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. So much of our politics has become a naked appeal to anger, fear, and resentment. That leaves us worried about our nation and our future together. I come without explanations or solutions. I can only tell you what I've seen. On America's day of trial and grief, I saw millions of people instinctively grab for a neighbor's hand and rally to the cause of one another. That is the America I know. That's another clip from George Bush's powerful speech on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 that he gave in Pennsylvania. 
where Flight 93 went down. That's the America I've seen too. But I've also seen the other one. And the truth is, they're both America right now. And it's up to us 20 years later to make the better one, the one that exists in the future, 20 years from now. This past weekend was 9-11. And as so often is true, the week of 9-11 is the best weather of the entire year in the Northeast. The sky is perfectly blue. That deep shade of 9-11 blue, the bluest sky we had ever seen that we remember so clearly from 9-11. This year on 9-11, I switched it up a bit. I was focused on my family. I didn't do all the memorials. I didn't go to ground zero. I didn't go to political events like I've done so many years in the past. But we did take a few minutes to reflect. And I posted a photo on Instagram of my son saluting the American flag over a fire truck. We teach him to appreciate the flag. We teach him to respect it. We teach him to challenge it. We teach him to make it better. We teach him about what it really stands for. We teach him that it belongs to him, to his brother, and to all Americans, not to a party, a politician, a war, or a president. We teach him to defend it and to make it stronger. And we teach him to never forget. And we teach him to always stay vigilant. Because vigilance is the true price of freedom. And it's up to all of us to pay for it. Even those of us that are six years old. It's how we keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week. And we will stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And with hope in our hearts, it's the reason we can give our kids reason to be hopeful. And it's the way we'll make this place better for them. It's how we'll prepare for whatever is to come, including the next 9-11, in whatever form it takes. So pass the hope. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant. And we're all in this together. Just like the people on Flight 93. Just like the FDNY and NYPD 20 years ago. And just like the FDNY and NYPD last week at Madison Square Garden. From Admiral Mike Mullen, to Rob Sarah, to my little boys, to Lady Gaga, to you. All across the country, we are all connected. And we got to fight like hell to keep it that way. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you so much for listening. And stay vigilant, America. America. 